Well, one thing we are surely doing is getting ourselves very familiar with this section of Scripture as we go back into the book of Numbers again. Appreciate the very fine way in which Timothy read what is an important part of the story. As we are looking at this biblical account, we have looked already at the people who were to take the land, the Israelites, and their needing to understand who they were so as to take what God had promised them and the need for us to do the same as the people of God as the Lord's church today. We looked at, have looked at so far the leadership, those who God anointed to be the leaders and some who tried to be the leaders who had no right to do so and we learned the importance of proper leadership. We also looked at the next generation. We looked at those who they were so afraid of but who actually would conquer the land, really Israel's greatest generation of all of their history, the, the generation led by Joshua into Canaan's land. And we saw from that the importance of focusing on those who are emerging into adulthood and our teenagers and our young people. Then we looked at attitudes that were behind the failure to take the land, the different attitudes, particularly complaining. And we saw how this was so costly. What I would like to do today is to focus a little bit more carefully on the plan itself. If you were to read Numbers chapter 13 in isolation, you might draw the conclusion that their taking the land of Canaan was a spur-of-the-moment decision. But nothing could be further from the truth. What's occurring here in Numbers 13 and 14 is the culmination of a promise that God had made to Abraham about 400 years before. In fact, you start reading your Bible and you get past the creation and the preservation of mankind through Noah and the ark and you, you read on through, you get to Abraham pretty early in the 12th chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says that the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your father's house and from your kinsmen and get to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse him that curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From that statement and that interaction with God, as God spoke through the fathers at this time, we see Abram taking his wife and his nephew from Haran and making their way toward the land of Canaan. And as we look from this particular period of time all the way up through that 400 years to the events that we read in Numbers chapter 13, we see the unfolding providence of God toward Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, in seizing the promise of the land of Canaan. In fact, God foreshadows this in Genesis chapter 15 later on in Abraham's life, beginning at verse 13 where the Bible says, No certainly, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own and will serve them, and they will be afflicted 400 years there. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall return to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." If you'll notice here, God explicitly drew out his plan for Abraham and his descendants. 
And if you'll think about it, God did some amazing things along the way to keep his plan intact and in motion. You might think about the miraculous birth of Isaac. Or maybe you give thought to Joseph's betrayal and his sojourn in Egypt, which God used to bring his family into Egypt where they grew into a nation. Or maybe you think about how God preserved Moses' life when all the other male Hebrew babies were being killed. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And certainly when you think about the ten plagues and the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, God was working through time and events to make sure that His people had the opportunity to work the plan that He had given them. But the interesting thing is that the people to whom this charge was actually given, the generation whose task it was to fulfill that promise by taking the land had a glaring lack of faith. They could not enter into the land because of their unbelief, according to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19. God had a plan for them. God revealed the plan through his spokesman, his prophet Moses, and they refused to listen. We understand as we look at the Bible that God has a plan for us. Sometimes we'll say God has a plan for my life, but how can I know specifically what plans God has for us all? How can we know what plans God has for his people as well as me as a person? The beautiful thing is that God has preserved his plan. He has told us what he wants, his will, and his plan for us. And he shows us how we can follow that. The problem is not everybody views the Bible alike. We understand that skeptics and atheists would say that this is not the inspired word of God, but that instead that this book is the product of men. But not even everybody who claims to believe in God and Christ see the Bible alike. There are some who would try to tell us that this book has been changed and corrupted. Perhaps we would ask them to tell us which particular verses have been changed. They can't tell us that, but they can tell us that it's been corrupted. There are others who would tell us that the Bible is simply the product of the frail and faulty man. And then there are others who would say that the Bible is simply a collection of love letters, an ancient heritage that is preserved for us, and we could get some kind of feeling about God from that. And yet our attitude toward the Bible is very important. If we're going to see it as revealing a plan for us or not, if we're going to see it as a guide and a direction for our life, because here's the dilemma. If we say that we believe in a man called Jesus... If we believe that he died and was buried and was raised for us, and if we believe that belief or faith in him is important, then our attitude toward this book is equally important. Because no matter what we might claim to believe about the Bible, we're not even interested in Christianity if we don't believe that it gives us faith in the man and if it doesn't reveal his sacrifice for us. But what this book is, if this book is inspired of God or not, is directly tied to that. They are inseparably joined together. Now, it also reveals for us God had a plan for his people that is unfolded for us in the Bible through the church. The church was not an accident. It was not an afterthought, but it was in God's plan. God and his plan tells us what the church is and what he wants the church to do and to be. 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hid in God, who created all things in Jesus Christ. To the intent that now under the heavenly, uh, in the principalities and, and heavenly places may be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus the Lord. But he says that those, uh, his will is made known through the church. The problem for this generation was that they did not understand or they were not willing to follow this plan and it affected what happened to them. And it affected what they did. In the same way, God has a plan for us. And as the people of God, we've got to understand that God does have a pattern to guide us. And our refusal or inability to see that impacts what happens in our obeying God's plan. I want us to notice four actions from the people of Israel in this generation and some things that we can learn from it. First of all, these Israelites wandered because, first of all, they refused. They refused God's plan. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 31 and following, we see that. The, the majority report comes back of the spies, and they listen to that. And so when they're told by Caleb and Joshua, let's go into the land and take it because God is with us. They had their feet in proverbial concrete, and they would not be moved. The leaders said, go. But they said no. And they gave a lot of different excuses. But at the end of the day, they would not possess the land that God had told them to possess. And in this, I want you to notice that Israel reveals a stubbornness with regard to God's plan and leadership that had started the day that they had come out of Egypt and all the way to the very end of their lives. Webb Garrison is a name that may be known to some of you readers. He wrote over 50 books and several of them about the Civil War. But he also wrote a book that uh, is entitled What It Means. And he looks at the background of a lot of different words. And he looks at one particular word that is of impact when you talk about this generation of people. And it's the word stiff-necked. And he said that many ancient cultures used the ox to pull carts and to plow their fields. And he said, under the best of circumstances, that these creatures were stubborn. But if you had a bull that was sullen, and he flexed the powerful muscles of his neck, he was difficult, if not impossible, to guide. And so the idea was among the Hebrew people that both figuratively and literally, the Bible speaks of the stiff-necked animals or people. And even though we don't use uh, ox power in Western society today, that idea has persisted. The idea of defiance and a stubborn refusal, that's stiff-neckedness. Did you know that four times between Exodus 32 and 34, that God through Moses refers to this generation of people as stiff-necked? And three times at the end of the wandering, Moses would look back in Deuteronomy and would refer to the people in the same way. And it's a reminder to us that serving the Lord is a matter of wills. It's about surrendering our will to the will of God. And so many things can get in the way of our willingness. It may be comfort. It may be fear. It may be our selfish desires. It may be a desire to compromise. It may be any number of things. 
It may be a failure to believe in the promises of God. But because mankind is faced with his own stubbornness, that's a part of our nature so often, we've got to decide to submit to God. That's something that Israel did not do. You know, may I suggest today that God's people stand at the crossroads of distinguished and extinguished. We can be distinct, we can be distinguished from those around us if we will eagerly submit to God's plan. But we face extinction and being extinguished if we give in to religious compromise and want to blend in and conform to the thinking of this world. Godly leadership is going to give us the voice and the will of God through God's word. They're going to lead us not to follow them, but God and Christ. So sometimes when we are confronted with what God's will is, it's easy to follow. But sometimes when we are shown what the word of God says, it cuts against the grain of how we feel and how we think. And there's any number of specific examples that we at times give about those matters that are not popular and that are very difficult to teach and difficult to receive. It may be that we hear what God's word says about his pattern for worship. Or it may be that we see what God says about the role of men and women in the church. Or it could be that we see what God says with regard to proactive and generous benevolence or, or personal involvement in evangelism. It may be very difficult for us to do and we're faced with a choice. Are we going to submit to God and resist the devil or resist God and submit to the devil? You see, as you look at Israel in this generation, they chose to resist God. And by default, they were submitting to the wrong authority. The latest data that they had in the Orlando Sun Sentinel for car accidents was 2010. And I found it interesting, and I'm not trying to to single anybody out because, Lord willing, if my help holds up, I'll be there someday. But one out of five of those who are over the age of 70 in Florida were involved in car accidents that involved a left-hand turn. And as they examined the cause of those crashes, in 64% of the case, there was a failure to yield the right of way. Now, I don't know. If it was 1 out of 10, we might say something about it being a a fluke. But 64%. Well, we might look at that and say that with the coming of age, there's a loss of reflexes and reaction time. But certainly it's it's not a willful thing. So often the crashes and the disasters of our lives are the result of intentionally refusing to submit to the right way, God's way. So we see that that's what happened with Israel. Jesus stood and wept over the city of Jerusalem, a city that he so desperately wanted to follow him, but the Bible says that they refused. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. And again, the writer of Hebrews looks at this particular generation as an example for Christians and admonishes in this way. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not or refused him who spoke from earth, how much more if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And so we see that when confronted with God's plan for them to enter into the land of Canaan, that there was a refusal. But second, we also see that they rebelled. For that, we turn over to Numbers chapter 14. And we begin to see what happens after they listen to the majority report. That there's a a pleading that, that Joshua and Caleb stand before them and say, please take the land. And you'll notice that it's in that context that the Bible says that they rebelled. And I want you to see that Joshua and Caleb tie this to their fear of the people. It says, why will you rebel against the Lord and fear the people? 
May I suggest to you that so often that's at the heart of rebellion is a fear of people. What people think and what people will say and what we feel like people can do to us. As you think about peer pressure, peer pressure itself is this idea of our being more afraid of men than of God. And as we look at that particular phenomenon, it challenges us. Jesus challenges us when he tells us to look at life from the proper perspective, not just at what happens to the body, but what the, the one who has the power over both the soul and the body, Luke 12, verse 4 and verse 5. And we look at Israel and we say, why didn't they understand that? Sure, the children of Anak, the giants, were before them, but the God of the universe was above them. We look in Scripture and we see that God has a distaste, a special distaste, For the sin of rebellion. It was rebellion that cost Saul his reign. In 1 Samuel 15 and verse 24. The Bible says that the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Because you have refused to follow the word of God. I have rejected you as being king over the people. So as we see we need to appreciate. that The spirit of rebellion can cost us a place in the kingdom of God. Isn't it a sign of our age so often to say, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do as I please. Some may confuse the messenger with the message or the source of the message, but do we ever react to God's word in that way when it's a difficult truth and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. That seems to be what happens to Israel in this generation. And God calls that rebellion. Never was there a sadder picture depicted in Scripture than the day that Jeremiah stood before the people in Jeremiah 6 and verse 16. And the passage begins so promisingly. When Jeremiah is focusing on the Word of God, and he says to the people, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk in it, and then you shall find rest for your souls. But the people said, We will not walk in it. Do you notice? It was a visible path. It was a proven path. It was a good path. It was a navigable path. And it was a safe path. It was the Lord's path. But the people refused to walk in it. You know how unlike Jesus, the spirit of rebellion truly is. Because Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. But the people of Israel in this generation, not only was their passive Stubbornness, there was active rebellion. And because of this, they could not inherit the land, but wandered instead. But I want you to notice that third, the Bible tells us that they rejected. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 11. The the last word was an adverb of negation. Literally, no or not. And it's translated to uh, reject or rebel. But this word for reject is a stronger word meaning to contempt, to show blasphemy. To abhor or despise. And God is the one who calls it a rejection, a scorning. And he makes it synonymous with unbelief or faithlessness. And he ties it back to the rebellion that we've just seen in the verses before that. I want you to notice with me that in saying that Israel rejected God and his plan, God says that he felt betrayed. He says, I've been showing these signs one after another. How long will they not believe in me? We need to understand that God certainly was hurt. But God in his hurt, it was not an emotional hurt that acts irrationally. Out of that very rational hurt, God said he was going to punish them for that. And it makes us ask, how must God feel 
when he looks down upon a world for whom he has given his only begotten son to see that the majority of every generation reject him. And even among those that profess to believe in him. How must he feel when instead of following what they find in his word, they turn to man-made doctrines and follow what they say with regard to matters of life and salvation? And sometimes even when God looks down among his own people and he sees us, if we find ourselves more intent on trying to be accepted by the unchurched or those who are in denominational error, how must God feel when he's done so much and has given so much? Perhaps one of the best examples that we can give just to show honesty and fairness has to do with a man who is a brother in Christ who almost 20 years ago was in an interview in Nashville, Tennessee. And this man is a very popular man. He has written over 50 books and there are over 80 million copies of his books in print. He was called America's pastor by Christianity Today and the best preacher in America by Reader's Digest. He was being interviewed on that television station in Nashville. And in the course of that interview, he said this. He says, I believe in baptism. Jesus was baptized. The Bible teaches baptism. I just don't believe that baptism saves you. Baptism is one of those ways that we celebrate our salvation. It's really the initial step of the faithful believer. Were you to go to his website, you will see him in several occasions reiterating his view that baptism is not a part of salvation. Friends, I want you to understand that this man is a very talented writer. And this is a man who has been an inspiration to a great many people. And I do not for a moment question his sincerity, but what he did there in that interview and on other occasions was he rejected God's plan. God said something And he said something different. And inasmuch as this man has so much influence, how many people are going to be impacted to reject God's plan because of what he said instead of what God's word says? While the uniform testimony of scripture is in Mark 16, 16, in Acts 2, 38, in 1 Peter 3, 21, and in other passages that baptism is part of God's salvation plan. And I think of how many people are going to be impacted on the day of judgment because they've listened to what he said instead of what God said. In essence, whether he was trying to do so, and I don't think that he was or not, he has rejected God's plan for his plan. And it causes us as a congregation and as individuals to ask ourselves what we believe and what we say that we believe. Is what we believe and what we say we believe such that if people listen and are persuaded, it will cause them to accept God's plan or reject God's plan? Israel rejected God's plan and it cost them the promised land. But I want you to finally notice with me that they renounced. In Numbers 14 and verse 41, that brings us down to the passage that Timothy read so well before the lesson began. And in Numbers 14, it may be confusing to you if you read that outside of the context because we've been seeing all about how God wants them to take the land of Canaan. And now in Numbers 14, they're trying to take the land of Canaan and now God says you can't do it. See, God gave them the chance to obey and they turned away from that. 
And now out of motives that were not the motive that they ought to have had, they're going to try and do what God says you can't do. And Moses says, don't transgress the command of the Lord. This will not succeed because you've rejected the word of God. You can't inherit the land. If you do, they'll drive you back. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. Moses was not there. They tried to take it and they were driven back just as God said that they would be. As we look at this idea of transgression, it's a verb with the idea of movement. Israel moved away. They transgressed. They set aside. They went beyond what God's word was. The theological word book of the Old Testament, speaking of this word, says men transgress the covenant or the law. They move outside or they move beyond the requirements of it. What happened was that Israel threw off God's leadership over them. God had carefully taken them all the way up to the edge of the promised land. He had shown himself to be trustworthy. But now when it mattered the most, they said, we don't want you to lead us. You know, that's the, the ultimate end of any plan that's attempted outside of God's authority is that it's going to fail. And that's what happened in Numbers 14 when they tried to take the land. How beautifully Paul depicts the relationship that we have with Christ as the idea of a marriage. He is our head and we are to submit to his leadership. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 through 24. But when we transgress the will of God, we're like a bride who rejects her husband and runs into the arms of another man. We need that picture of marriage, that picture of devotion that we see from couples like John and Ann Bittar. I don't know if you heard about them in Fairfield, Connecticut. And they hold the record now for the longest standing marriage, 81 years. Can you imagine the potential difficulties that they faced over the last 80 plus years? And yet they not only have done so, if you talk to anybody who knows them, you will hear that not only have they endured, but they have had a very happy marriage. Many have been the individuals and outlets that have interviewed them, and they have talked about the various elements of the success of their marriage. But the daughter, perhaps, she summed it up the best when she said, they came from a generation where there is such respect for each other and caring. Now, Obviously, you've got to have some genetics on your side to be old enough to be married that long. But don't you want that? Don't you want a relationship that can last that long with somebody on earth in accordance with something that God designed in the second chapter of the Bible? Something that can be so fulfilling, so wonderful? And yet we look and we see certainly when we talk about marriage that the present generation doesn't have that respect or care. We need to maintain that, but not just in our marriage, but most importantly, in our relationship with Christ. You see, whatever He wants us to do, we should eagerly desire to please Him out of the respect that we have for Him, out of the care that He's shown for us, and out of an understanding that He knows what's best for us. He wants us to do it. And the beauty is that when we have that kind of a relationship with Christ... We have a, not just a long-standing relationship, but a very happy and beautiful one. You see, that's what God wanted for that generation. He wanted them to have that mutual love and respect and trust. And yet they would not. They renounced, they threw off his leadership. It, it's sad that they made that choice 
when God's plan had been in motion for 400 years. It's beautiful that the next generation learned and they went in and they possessed the land because all of these things that we say about this generation from the text is not true of the next generation. They're not characterized like this. They do not refuse. They do not rebel. They do not reject His plan. And they do not renounce His leadership. And as a result, they do incredible things, things that they may not have imagined that were possible for them to do. And it was not possible without God's help. It's all a matter of what you do with the plan. What can we do as a church and as individuals if we'll be so submissive to that plan? I don't know if you heard about this one, but Cheryl Sanderson has an amazing story. Her husband is dying of a terminal disease. It's changing his personality, and as a result of trying to care for him, they had a a big fight. Unfortunately, she made the decision to take several painkillers as well as sleeping pills and then get behind the wheel of an automobile. She got in her brand-new Mazda RX-5, and then she drove off. And as she drove, she stopped at a farmhouse, And she sat out beside the car because she felt nauseous and she felt like she needed a nap. When she woke up, she found herself in the middle of the woods in unfamiliar territory. As they retrace the the story, they find out that she had actually had driven her car onto two ferries and crossed places that she hadn't been since she was five years old. She actually gassed up her car, but she didn't remember any of that. She found herself from daylight from sunup to sundown, running through woods, just trying to find her way out. Somewhere she lost her shoes, and as a result of that, she was just tearing up her feet every step that she took. She was cut on brambles. She was scratched on tall grasses and branches. Each day she woke up, desperate to find her way out. For four days she went without water, without food, just feeling hopeless and frightened. And dehydrated and disoriented. They were looking for her back. Now she's from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And the, the local mounties were looking everywhere for her. She was over 30 miles away from her house. Friends and family didn't have any idea that she would be there. But those rescuers were very adept. But she was also resourceful. You can imagine after four days you'd want to be found She was standing on a hill when the rescue plane came by. And to make sure she could be seen, she ran down into the valley beside that hill. They still didn't see her. And so she decided to take off her her dress and, and wave it on a stick. And finally the rescue plane saw her. She broke down in tears. Her family wanted her found. The rescuers wanted her found. And she wanted to be found. There's a world full of people who are lost and don't even know it. There are some who do. They just want to be found. They want God to find them. God has told us how to be found. Our job is to search for them and rescue them. But it may be that you realize that you've not done what God wants you to do to be rescued from sin. You know, are you ready to save yourself from where you are? By being obedient to God's plan. God supply the sacrifice without which you could not do anything In order to have rescue and salvation. Because Jesus died on a cross. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The son of God. If you'll repent from your sins. And if you'll be baptized to have those sins washed away. 
You'll be rescued from the domain of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Are you ready to do that? As a child of God, have you wandered away, found yourself lost? You need to come to yourself and return home to the Father's house. If that's you, why not come right now as we stand and sing?